And I don't think anybody who talks about the future should be proposing a retrenchment of the quality of your life. No. Right? No one's saying give anything up. All we're saying is you can be happy in a way that is not damaging to the planet. Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere you are on the internet at WFPR.FM and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial 102.9 in the car, in the home, clearly in that Franklin radius. Here today with another Making Sense of Climate discussion on our journey, number 30, the stop along the journey. Welcome, Ted. How are you doing this Monday? Oh, Steve, it's great. Great to be here. Amazing that we have done this 30 times, right? Just that's a for sort of a ad hoc discussion and see what what happens. It's evolved into a, I think, a fruitful discussion about stuff, right? Climate related stuff that's useful. So, kudos to you. Yeah, and I think the um, the one of the key pieces that we've talked about in terms of our overall objective was kind of like, how can we, i.e. us little Franklin, do some stuff along the way to this getting to net zero and getting to addressing climate change, which obviously is a worldwide issue. There's some debate as to whether you can do anything or not, et cetera. We think you can, and we're going to start here. So I appreciate you helping to share and help me make sense of what it is going on, because there is so much. And in the last couple of days, I had seen some articles, and then it turns out as we go through, and we'll elaborate on this, because this is going to be our major topic about geoengineering, is that you were already reading a book earlier this year and had a couple of podcast episodes exploring it, and yet to my sort it just kind of bubbled up and caught my eye last week because of some other things that were going on so yeah i think it just goes to show that it's a big topic there's a whole lot going on has been going on for a long time and something's kind of keep coming back right absolutely i think things evolve right so the topic of of sort of solar engineering, geoengineering, which we can explain what all that means, but it's not new, but new things keep happening. And so we keep revisiting and and it helps all of us to have some facility to, to know what even the phrases mean, because it just makes things make so much more sense when you have a couple of vocabulary words as to what's what's the topic's about. Mm-hmm. And you begin to put things into context, and all of a sudden, the bigger picture comes out of the gloom. So, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, and it it's, enables us also to tie back one of the other articles we had was, oh, it turns out, as I went through the article, while it was, quote, a current article, it was actually a refresh of the IPCC report earlier this year, which we had talked about at that time. But that in itself, to your point, in terms of things are evolving, the IPCC report was a summation of years of work by the whole set of scientists that make up the entire group. And then they summarized, and this is our stake in the ground, so to speak. And oh, by the way, things are continuing to change. (laughs) So now there's additional studies pointing out this and pointing out that. And that's what popped up in terms of Okay, ship tracks. So freight liners, you know, massive ocean vehicles, even cruise ships to a certain extent, 
they're traveling along and there was some engineering apparently done in order to help reduce their emissions. They made some changes. And now because those ship tracks are kind of dissolving, disappearing, it's also helping to create warmer water, which has been part of the, the recent news where, you know, now coral reefs are getting bleached. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. So the, the report, the way I understand it, is, is the following. And as you say, everything is happening in real time simultaneously. So in 2020, we sort of missed the idea that the, what's called the International Maritime Union, which is for a big name like that, basically it's some agglomeration of all of the uh, shipping companies around the world, right? Somehow an organization that represents those people, they stopped using what's called bunker oil, I think it's called, which is the cheapest kind of oil that you can get, the dirtiest, grimiest, grittiest, junkiest mm-hmm. stuff, bunker oil to power the freighters that carry the containers back and forth across the Pacific and across the Atlantic, right? All that shipping, which Mm -hmm. is a huge amount of global commerce, goes in these ships, which are burning this cheap oil. The oil, when when it burns, produces something called sulfur dioxide and various other kinds of particulates. So so these are little things that come up and they're, they're, I believe they're, they're like, they're not molecules so much. They're little clumps of sulfur dioxide, small enough to float in the air. And what's marvelous about this stuff is that it reflects sunlight. So what's been happening, what's been happening here to four, according to these, this article we we're talking about, these container ships sail back and forth across the Atlantic and the Pacific, burning this cheap oil, launching into the air these little particles of sulfur dioxide, which are then reflecting sunlight back away from the earth in a way that it doesn't get caught by the greenhouse effect. Right? So now that's a, good thing. that's a good thing because it's keeping the, it's, it's reflecting back some of the sunlight. You don't trap it. But in 2020, the shipping guys decided to stop using the cheap bunker oil, reduce the amount of sulfur dioxide that was being launched into the air. And all of a sudden, more sunlight's coming through, and the claim is the oceans are getting hotter because of that, because you, the protective thing that we didn't know we were doing uh, is now gone. And it's kind of a, I mean, you got to go through it two or three times to sort of get all the twists and turns of the argument, right? Mm-hmm. But basically, the argument from the article we've been seeing is that uh, we have been messing with the atmosphere in this way for many decades and now when we stop messing with it all of a sudden we see the true behavior and the true behavior is to make things harder than we wanted it to be originally and you're deeper into a kettle of fish so to speak literally maybe cooked fish at that if the water gets hot enough <laughs> and and so the truth is what's fascinating if you're going of course steve you'll put up the link but yes. the, there are pictures from a satellite where they're able to monitor, I guess they take it in the appropriate wavelength of light. Mm -hmm. You can see the, basically the trail of these sulfur dioxide particles that look like a cloud, straight lines that have, they're not airplane contrails. They are from these container ships crossing back and forth across the ocean. And that is what 
previously has been in quote unquote protecting us by reflecting sun back out and now that protection is gone and the claim is that's what's making the atlantic warmer i'm not sure that that can be extended to the fact that there is a incredible ocean heat wave off of the pacific coast right right and so i wouldn't want to get to no 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 yeah this it's interesting how many layers of an onion there are to this <laughs> right? right clearly the, the 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 tracks change and oh by the way we see an effect now how much of an effect is it is it the major contributor that the re- additional research needs to be done there to confirm that but yeah we right. we've got that el nino el uh, Nina, el nino yeah right those patterns, and yet this one apparently is going to be one of the major hot ones that we've ever seen. <laughs> so that in itself has its own effects. <laughs> right. right. I mean, so the, 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 that's why modeling the climatic, climate models are so difficult and remarkable mm. that they're as accurate as they are. Right. But there are so many interacting physical processes between the you know, reflecting sunlight from the smoke of the of the container ships and El Nino, which has been going on for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Right? All these things interplay. And heretofore, before humans came along, right, before we started putting carbon dioxide in the air, you know, with George Washington's time, right, prior to that, all this stuff was more or less in, in equilibrium, sure. right? It was, everything was in balance, Pretty much, of course, you can argue that, but I mean, pretty much things are, are in balance. And now we've couple, spent a couple of centuries screwing around with it. And it's like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Right? You, we don't know what we're doing, but we're changing mm-hmm. things. And there's no guarantee it can't spin into a bigger and bigger deal. And at some point, while it seems to be in balance, seems to be in balance, all of a sudden it's reaching a tipping point, And all of a sudden people start noticing, oh, we may not be in balance anymore. <laughs> But I think, can I, let, let me just stray slightly sideways here, because this is a, this is a big topic. What the buzzword that, dear listener, we should be listening, you should be, have your ears open for is something called geoengineering. Right. Geoengineering, which is basically, as the name implies, engineering the planet, engineering the geo, which is mm-hmm. us, right? It's the right. planet. Um, and there are various it's a, a huge amount to unpack when it comes to geoengineering. But the, the bottom, the simplest statement is that smart people can envision methods by which we could impact the, the climate change process. We could do something to restrict how hot things get. Mm-hmm. And before I go any farther, let me just say geoengineering. If you're a kid, like if you're when I was a kid, geoengineering involved um, cloud seeding, right? That people wanted to make it rain where they wanted to make it rain. And mm-hmm. so they put up a plane to put some um, stuff in the air to see if they could make it rain over Kansas. And of course, there was talk about using this as a weapon of war, mm-hmm. right? right? Weather modification. So there's a long history of geoengineering. But at this point, the geoengineering involves doing things to impact climate, to, to impact climate change. And there's good geoengineering, there's bad geoengineering, there's geoengineering that is consistent with natural processes. There's geoengineering that 
that is about as wacky as you can get. I mean, some <laughs> some smart guy from MIT says, gee, if we just launched a satellite and put a little kind of a translucent umbrella halfway into the sun, we could just control how much sunlight reaches the earth by putting a little umbrella out there. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, yeah. And, let, then, you know, and let's... then, of course, position so that the umbrella would get adjusted would, and would just continue with the point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean the marvel, concept works. <laughs> it's a thrilling idea. It's like, it sounds like I could write a science fiction book about it, right? But then there are other more... I mean, there's, again, these are just kind of examples of geoengineering. Somebody was proposing, and actually went so far as to actually do this before they get caught and stopped, was to dump iron filings into the South Pacific Ocean. The iron filings, for some reason that I cannot explain to you, but they stimulate the growth of algae and and things in the water. And therefore the growth of algae captures carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then it sinks to the bottom of the ocean and say, right. wow, how right. cheap is that? Let's just dump some more iron in the water. We'll capture all the CO2 and life will be great. Mm-hmm. One of the other big ideas of geoengineering, which of course, there's, as I say, there's more than you can shake a stick at and mm-hmm. some of them are crazier than others, right? So this is not a complete, but one of the ideas is to, to, intentionally put into the stratosphere, into the upper atmosphere, up above where the jets fly, above where the jets fly, go up there and and put out these little bits of particles called, you know, uh, sulfur oxide, right? Which we made reference to earlier. Basically spray that stuff into the sky. And what that stuff in the sky would do is basically reflect sunlight away so that you don't heat the earth up as quickly as you would have otherwise. And that the sulfur dioxide is sort of compatible with the way, you know, you get sulfur dioxide from volcanoes and all kinds of stuff. And that eventually what happens is the sulfur dioxide migrates to the North Pole and falls out of the air and life is good again. So you have to keep replenishing the sulfur dioxide in the air to keep the protective reflection so the earth doesn't heat up. Mm-hmm. You could think yeah. about how to do that. Right. And it's it's a so let me just go one step further. We I was had the good fortune to talk to an author who made a podcast and we made a podcast about his ideas about so what's called in this specific instance it's called solar radiation management. Right. Solar radiation management, which basically amounts to reflecting the sunlight back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was saying that as humans, it is time for us to begin the study of how this would work, right? And then if we figure out how it would work, we put it in a box and give it to our grandkids. And if 200 years from now, things are not good and and the world is really desperate, they would have the option to go ahead and do this geoengineering uh, that we have figured out how to do for them. It would be a gift to a future generation to have the option, the toolkit, but that we should not be doing it now, that today what we ought to do is cutting down burning fossil fuels, right? Stop burning fossil fuels. Don't worry about seeding the clouds. But that was wise to begin the study of it, uh, again, so that we have a toolkit. 
Whether or not you accept that, read the book, yeah. but there yeah. you go. A couple of points to add to ex explain for the listeners as well. Um, since I did have a chance to listen to one of the two episodes, you talked with uh, Wake Smith about his book, which was deliberately and aptly titled Pandora's Toolbox, a la the Greek myth of Pandora, you open the box and some good things happen, but maybe not so good things. So deliberately Pandora's toolbox, because some things, yeah, may be good, but you know, more work needs to be done before we can really go there. Um, it was interesting that, you know, so in the realm of sunlight gets deflected naturally anyway, some of it gets absorbed and it's in the absorption that then becomes heat and then becomes our weather, et cetera. He doesn't, and you're to reinforce your point, we can't do this now. We need to focus on net zero, period. But at some point in time, when we reach net zero, and maybe after the temp has gone up more than it should, it may be one of those points that, okay, we could open this box and develop this to at least help reduce the temp. There has other things that it's not going to do because, well, it's not intended to do that, but it may help us with the temp. And that's why he wants us to focus on stopping fossil fuel use today. First, let's do that. Continue the research because, yeah, while we conceptually, it has happened, and you mentioned uh, volcanoes, volcanoes happen periodically. Um, even the major wars, World War II in particular, generated a whole bunch of particulates through all the explosions, et cetera. We, we now have the data so that people can go look at those data and start figuring those into now much more than the polynomial equation, much more you know, mitigation factors, consider for this, consider for that. And while currently the thought was that the particulates would at least, obviously, once something goes up, it will come down. It tends to come down over the poles. We know the poles are already being challenged these days with global warming and global boiling, somebody has started saying, because it's exceeding what is already being warmed. We still need to research that. Maybe because of what's going, that won't work. Who knows? More research to be done, but... To the extent that you had read, well, he wrote the book a while ago. You interviewed him earlier this year. And now this topic kind of like bubbles up again. It's like, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think you're there. I mean, there's two things. One is that events like Mount Pinatubo in the 1990s that put up a lot of dust and ash into the atmosphere. And this current example of sulfur dioxide from the cruise ships and even 9-11 really with three sure. days and 9-11 yeah. there were no i mean these are sort of natural experiments that scientists can use to figure out how would how would geoengineering really work mm -hmm. um but then the, the, the flip side or, or a different aspect is that there are profound moral questions ethical questions about oh, geoengineering yes. right By all means. and that that, that because number one, the first question is, who gets to decide that we're going to geoengineer, right? Who gets to commit the whole freaking planet to mm -hmm. this new scheme, right? right? There's no governance. There's no governance set up now to to sort of make a decision, the uh, make a decision to go ahead with geoengineering at a global scale. We don't know enough at the current time to say whether or not the benefits and the impacts would be distributed fairly. Mm -hmm. 
That is to say, you could put silicon dioxide in the air and reflect the sunlight in one place and shift the heat burden to some other place. So, of, so of course, then the nightmare scenario says, well, the United States decides it's going to protect itself and make sure that the air over the United States is well saturated with silicon dioxide. We stay cool and the rest of the earth you know, the people in the deserts of Africa accept hotter temperatures as a consequence of what we've done. And that's just morally unacceptable. And there's no way to figure that out. We don't even know if that would happen. And there's no global governance to figure out how you would adjudicate the decision to go ahead with that. So, which is why, if I could just one last point to make, Steve, which is why you may have noticed recently that the White House Joe Biden, God bless him, um, put out a, a, a an official report about geoengineering, mm-hmm. right? And I pulled up the, the the White House announcement, and they were adamant. In when you read the announcement, they have like bolded, bolded parts of things saying, "We were forced to do this by an act of Congress. We didn't want to open this Pandora's box of talking about geoengineering because, of course, then everyone accuses." Biden is saying, oh, you know, we're going to go do geoengineering, right? Right. And they came to the conclusion that it's very early. We should not be doing anything. We need to maybe even studying it is a controversial, you know, some people don't even want to study it, which is Well, and that's that's part of our political climate that we're dealing with. And you can pick any topic, but there's a political climate that just doesn't allow for a sustained and civil discourse around the pros and the cons so we can reach a conclusion. And yeah, somebody threw slipped into a prior appropriation bill, the requirement for the government to pull out a report. So then he pulls out the report, had to do it. And then all of a sudden, the other side is saying, look what he wants us to do. And it's like, please, please. (laughs) He's trying to set the stage for a civil discussion and they won't even let that happen. So we have to be careful what's going on there. But we, at least you and I, as examples, hopefully, are having this kind of a civil discussion. And we're raising as well that it's an option. It needs to be further explored. And somebody's one is going to have to fund it. Two is going to have to foster it in the right way, et cetera, and then bring it back in. Yeah, which organization? We're, uh, you know, UN sounds like it's already kind of in the space to the extent that it does the climate reporting. But I mean, to a certain extent, they're not really that kind of governance organization yet. So that would be a change to their charter. And then, of course, that would buy, you know, the, the powers to be, the U.S., China, Russia, they, they would have to agree to that. <laughs> not anytime soon, right? <laughs> and and I, I think it goes beyond, I mean, the U.N. So now what we're talking about is who gets to decide about geoengineering. And I think that the U.N., if you think of the United Nations as dealing with countries, there's a real risk that this kind of geoengineering could be done by individuals, wealthy individuals that just make up their mind to do it. Because relatively speaking, it's a cheap thing to do, right? right? It's, it's cheap. And there's, in fact, a company, there is a company already beginning. There's a company called Make Sunsets, which has already launched a balloon with some sulfur dioxide in it. Uh, you launch a balloon, the balloon blows up, you spread the, the dioxide around, you try and measure how it behaves, okay? Very preliminary, uh, negligible, mm-hmm. negligible amounts, but 
nobody's stopping them. They're free to do it, right? There's no and they have and, the and funding that, and the wherewithal to do so, which is funding, one of the points from the, not just millionaires, billionaires. They've got so much money, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, so the the whole question of of right, these sort of moral the, the the question of governance is incredibly important as mm -hmm. to who gets to make these decisions, and we're not anywhere near that. Uh, Right. These are almost questions of a science fiction novel at this point, but they could become very, very real very, very quickly. Yeah, I think the the other point he made in the book you touched on and I'll go further with is that the, the reality is that if at some point we will hit net zero, maybe beyond the projections, the targets we've already set, and we've already seen the world is getting warmer and warmer and warmer, our kids and their kids, our grandkids and their kids Right. So future generation is going to be left with literally a pot of boiling water to continue that theme. Um, and are they going to have the tools to be able to deal with it? What is life going to be like for them if it's already becoming so challenging for us? Right. right. Um, there's a I just caught a brief and I haven't been able to corroborate it, but apparently there is an annual you know, Boy Scout convention, they were being held in South Korea, but there's now a typhoon going that way. So they're evacuating all the Boy Scouts, really? all the scouts coming back to their various, right? So granted, you know, we've admitted and the world's not perfect. We we do fly occasionally. So these people, certainly many of them flew to South Korea to participate. So there's 30,000 kids coming back to various parts um, to avoid a major storm, but also creating, you know, entrails and using fossil fuels. And well, yeah, they need to do that, obviously. But at some point in time, we're going to have to figure out how we can live <laughs> in a fossil fuel less world. And maybe we don't travel so much, right? Well, you're, you're back to one of my, uh, my, well, the question I have is, let's, let's just talk about air traffic. So, so flying in a jet puts a lot of carbon dioxide, among other stuff, into the air. Okay, so jet it, it, modern air travel is a, an incredible greenhouse gas um, source, right? Mm -hmm. It needs to, and, and somehow it's only going to grow. It's only going to grow in percentage as we cut down on other uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But air travel is an extremely important thing. But it begs a kind of a philosophical question of would global commerce grind to a halt if it took you a week to get from the United States to China instead of getting there in 10 hours, right? So the jets zoom, and I, I this is my own hobby horse because I've been to China a bunch of times for business, right? And you know, mm -hmm. they say, oh, yeah, get on a jet, boom, you're there, you know, spend a week and then you come back, right? Could we not do this via Zoom, right? Could we not, if it took me a week to go in a low carbon dioxide, if I sailed a boat across the Pacific, right? I got there a few days later and we had a, and, and you had a meeting. Would that, would that like ruin modern civilization? I would say no. <laughs> you know, the world mm -hmm. would go on just fine. It might not grow as quickly as, you know, you imagine, but people will find a way. And that begs the whole question, I think, of, stuff we may have touched on is whether or not the future is one that is of continuous economic growth mm. or not. But I mean, yeah. to just bring it back to air travel, I mean, how often, you know, if business travelers don't have to fly that much. If you cut down on some business travel, you still have an economy that runs 
and you've cut down a lot of carbon dioxide pollution. Then you finally get down to what are called love miles, right? Where people are going to visit relatives mm-hmm. or, you know, that, that, sure. you know, and that's also got a, a sort of a question around it, but it seems like there's so many things that you could do before you get to the level of, um, you know, feeling terrible about being on an airplane to go see your granny. Right. Mm. I mean, it, it uh, well, and to the to the economic justice aspects of it, to a certain extent, it's unfair today because those who can afford to travel um, do, and some more frequently than others because they can afford to. And there are folks who are on the other end of the economic scale; they've got their two feet, and or a bike, and or a cow, or a horse, or a, a donkey, or whatever, right? Um, so there's already an economic injustice today. And I think what it gets to ultimately, if we continue down that road, one way would be what's our measure of growth today. It's on the almighty dollar or some financial measurement, which coincidentally doesn't necessarily consider the sustainability of the world we're living in. So if we start factoring that sustainability piece, then maybe the growth comes back to another level that's still, quote, redefined as successful, <laughs> but in fact is now becoming more livable. <laughs> I, you're completely right, Steve. I mean, it's it's two points. I just want to reiterate, reiterate on the unfairness of jet travel mm-hmm. and how stratified it is is that the vast majority, just one way to think of it is that the vast majority of humanity is never going to see the inside of an airplane. Right. It's just never going to happen for the billions of people on the planet. And the the people that are doing all the flying are an extreme elite of which you and I, Steve, are part of that extreme elite, right? In Mm -hmm. the United States, we all think we have a right to fly, but we're a small fraction of the population. So there, there is that idea that I just planted. You don't have a right to fly and that it's an incredibly in non-equitable kind of thing. But the other one is the other idea I wanted to put out in terms of the uh, economic growth and sustainability long term is that there are – there's game theory. Maybe we've touched on this before. Game theory. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a zero-sum game where I win, you lose – but there's also something called an open game where the point of the game is to keep playing the game. Yes. And that's a sustainability. That's even you're alive in order to keep your kids alive, right? What right. you're doing today. And so in, so game theory to sustainability, I mean, game mm-hmm. theory is this sort of mathematical niche, right? It's an abstract kind of thing, but it does apply is that the things we do today are, should be life affirming and not some kind of a closed system where I get to fly on an airplane and, you know, the people in Africa and the people a hundred years from now, the heck with them, because I mm-hmm. want to fly on an airplane today. For the listeners as well, uh, clarification. I believe we did touch it in one of our prior episodes. If I can find the link, I'll include it. Um, but yeah, we talked about uh, kind of the open game. So it's a, it, it's the point of the game is not I win, you lose, because then it's a closed game. And that's exactly that. Somebody wins, somebody loses. That's one game. But the open game Amen. is really not so much that it's ever going to win. Her. The game just continues which from our life perspective is obviously like, this is the one world we're on today. Let's continue to, to use it and have it sustainable. And, you know, not something you have to wear, just will end up because it's so hot. We'll end up in 
either an air-conditioned environment, assuming we have enough AC and electric, or we just walk around with our shorts and you know skinny clothing on because it's so hot out otherwise. But yeah, so those two things. Yeah. The other piece, there was an article and coincidentally ties towards this, uh, more sustainable building materials, clearly steel frames. Uh, when, once they came in, um, steel was a rather resource intensive. You needed iron ore, you needed a whole bunch of energy. I remember I was fortunate at one point in time, I worked in a steel mill and we'll spend time later going into the details around that. But it was it was fascinating to see how it could go. But sustain sustainability for steel is not necessarily the best. But, oh, by the way, rocks, stone, you know, marble has been used for years, clearly is used still today in kind of like the elaborate show places. You know, you got a marble counter, you've got a marble entranceway in homes and Supreme Court buildings and other, you know, edifices, church and otherwise bring back stone as a more sustainable building material. Obviously, there's a finite number of that as well, <laughs> but it's probably certainly on the more sustainable level than creating and using more fossil to generate steel. <laughs> well, I, I think the, the article said there's a lot of stone out there. The earth is basically one big stone. And <laughs> what I, so, so this article was making the case that we could and should be building more buildings using stone as the building material. And I think the thing that caught my eye was that you could take stone and cut it to an appropriate shape, a useful shape, or sorry, a brick shape, mm -hmm. right? Much more environmentally friendly, in a, in a much more environmentally friendly way than it would be to make steel or right. cement or something. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're engineering the, you know, engineering the the rock and stone to be in sort of a consistent pattern so you can make buildings out of it, you're still ahead of the game in terms of sustainability. And I think it's a fascinating idea. I mean, I think that, Steve, that I was thinking a lot of stuff about this because it is, I mean, one one reason I think that a stone house is is historically or in the modern times become less attractive because it's not very thermally efficient. It doesn't retain heat very well. Right. Once it gets cold, the stone stays cold. Uh, and if you heat up the inside, the stones just radiate the heat to the outside. So you could build structurally build a building, it seems to me, with stone if you're able to make it energetically sealed on the inside. So there's mm -hmm. got to be some other material that may not be structurally holding the building up, but are keeping right. the ins keeping the uh, uh, keeping the people inside warm. Or some um, layers of insulation in between. Exactly. Right. right. But I mean, beyond, and, and then I guess the other thing is that I, I think that, I mean, just as you don't build skyscrapers out of brick, right, because you can't stack the brick up, mm -hmm. and that stainless steel and glass are these sort of, so the way they build skyscrapers now is to build a frame and then hang all the glass on the outside. Mm. So it's not the wall of the skyscraper is not holding it up. There's an inner core, right? That would be tougher to do with stone, but, 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 but 
So you don't have skyscrapers anymore, right? You have a dense urban place. It looks like New York in the 1890s kind of time. Mm -hmm. You know, you have you know, five-story buildings, which is about the max you want to walk up and down every day, uh, made out of stone. That's not the end of the world. And it just speaks to me to the way we have to reimagine the future of how things are going to be, what stuff you can afford to give up, or mm -hmm. you may think you can't afford to give up, but in fact, you don't need, right? right? In order to make the open game where we have a sustainable future that we give to our kids. Right. Yeah, on the one hand, kind of going more into the kind of the drawing back on our cartoon days for those who we admit we're, we've seen these, the Jetsons, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind of exactly. the futuristic piece, as opposed to going back more to the Barney Rubble in the Stone Age days. <laughs> the yeah, Flintstones, Barney right? versus, uh, versus the George. Yes, that, uh, that does date us. But in fact, I mean, those, but I, th I think that, you got to be careful because I am not proposing and I don't think anybody who talks about the future should be proposing a retrenchment of the quality of your life. No. Right? No one's saying give anything up. All we're saying is you can be happy in a way that is not damaging to the planet. And that's what we're searching for. Not that we're going to drive our cars by running our toes on the ground, <laughs> like the way, uh, uh, you know, Fred Flintstone did, right? right? But that yeah. we find ways that are more thoughtful and more kind to the planet, not because we're like noble people, but because you, you want to keep the planets where we live, right? You got to take care of the, the, the home first. And so, yeah, to live in a stone house does not mean that you don't have internet or you don't have a good life. Mm -hmm. it, it's just. Uh, yeah, the materials, literally, um, the structure, but the livability certainly may be enhanced. Um, well, it, I mean, it, it's, it's worth it's, a discussion, which is really the whole point, period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the. Um, I've been. Since the summertime, I've been out on my bike again, and I'm still, I haven't bought an electric bike yet, but I want to go try one out. I, mm -hmm. I read a book about, about biking. It's called Two Wheels Good. I can look up the reference. It's just a very entertaining, entertaining book. But it's just how much, at a global scale, bicycles matter for sort of the last mile delivery of things in China and in all these uh, and around the world and more and more so in the United States. But the bicycles are this marvelous, they've been adopted by sustainable environmental people like me because they're so marvel, right? You get mm -hmm. to go fast, you don't use any gasoline. Right. But throughout the world, they are important in so many ways. And again, this is a vision of the future that you could be building, like the city of Paris. And again, we've talked about all these things, but Paris has changed itself over the last five, seven years into a bicycle city. It's like, why isn't Boston doing that? Why, you know, right. it just takes someone to say, we're going to do this. And you could have, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, not to get, there was a long chapter in the book that I referenced about rickshaws in mm. Dhaka, Bangladesh. Sure. And that the rickshaw is a, the bicycle rickshaw is a symbol of the city, but also a great discussion point because it's the poorest of the poor that are doing the pedaling to move everyone else around. Right. So there's a whole equity issue around who's mm -hmm. riding the bikes, right? right. And 
who's driving so the, the bike versus riding the bike. Exactly, right? Who's pedaling the bike versus who's sending the bat? So there's a ton yeah. of stuff to but that's where, where it gets where life is interesting and the whole question of climate stuff is interesting because you get to sort of try and parse together how would you create a society where, you know, you can commute to your work on a bicycle under your own power uh but then other people get paid a decent living to drive rickshaws and do last mile delivery of your groceries from mm -hmm. the stop and shop to your home. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Amazon vans and the UPS vans, et cetera, et cetera. And the grub hubs and the Ubers Absolutely. delivering. And yeah, they want to make those almost like a drone delivery. Right. right. You know, small enough package deliver right to your door. Yeah. Um, well, that's a whole other question, isn't it? The, uh, drone delivery mm -hmm. i saw a thing this is apropos of nothing but they i saw something somewhere saying that uh let's see the helicopter in the korean war was instrumental in dropping the death rate because they would uh they would helicopter people out wounded evacuate the medicare the medical emergencies and, quicker and then in the vietnam war they had the medevac which i guess was a similar you know yeah. and i guess in in ukraine now they're using drones to get wounded people off the battlefield and to, and that it's again, this sea change in how, mm -hmm. of course, that raises a whole raft of other questions about, you know, but, but the idea of, of taking care of people quickly, right. Is, uh, uh is, so you take a drone to a hospital instead of an ambulance. Yeah, I'm just waiting nice. for the day where, where my, uh, my electric automated bike drives up with my pizza from, uh, from the local pizza right. place and drops right. it off. Yeah. And it seems, almost like yesterday as at times that i was amongst other newspaper carriers who would bike to our delivery pickup point for the newspapers which these days if they are delivered is delivered by somebody in a car riding by thrown in a driveway um as opposed to the hordes of newspaper carriers um they used to go around via foot and wagon and bike um, oh yeah so oh, yeah. yeah things yeah. have changed evolved and We've covered a lot of topics. I think the, the key so, takeaway so, so is a, a random walk through this uh, this my this field, Steve. Today we we've been left and right and all around. Well, I think it reinforces a couple of points. You know, check out the headlines. Yes, but sometimes the headlines, while they're new, are not necessarily new, 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 new. <laughs> it's not breaking. Sometimes they're furthering advances along the storyline, the story arc. The research that's required from a science perspective. Um, sometimes they're just revisiting. So somebody finally gets around to, okay, like you did, you, the guy wrote the book in some period of time, you finally got to interview him. And then somebody else discovers it like us. So now the link is going to be there. And, you know, so the story is continuing to evolve to that extent. That's um, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, as in all the, as in all these, uh, I mean, again, not to, as I say, we've been sort of all over the lot, but I think maybe an interesting topic for some future discussion is how in the summer of 2023, where these catastrophes, climate catastrophes keep coming upon us quicker and quicker, mm -hmm. the question of, you know, I mean, how come we didn't see this in the models? All the models said that the kind of stuff we're looking at now is going to happen in the year 2070. And here here they are ahead of the curve, right? And it's it's this evolving story, even of the predictions of what we think might happen. We have to keep revisiting them. So, yeah, there's a there's a cyclic 
cyclic thing. We keep touching the same stories over and over again, but everything advances. Maybe it's not so much cyclic as a spiral upward in uh, what you understand and what you what you understand about the topic. Yeah, I, I like the under moving towards an understanding part because that plays well with what we're trying to do here. Anyway, um, an aside on the AI and the data, et cetera, and the models. To the extent that the model is based on data, and we know the data from much of the historical purposes, while it's valid for that data, because the changes have been happening so rapidly, how how are the models going to keep up with those data changes? That's really where the issue is, and that in itself will take time to kind of sort through and get a new set of model data to play with, as opposed to using you know years old data, which doesn't apply anymore. If we haven't lost you listeners, thank you for listening. <laughs> That's right. We were just we went geoengineering and then the philosophical implications of geoengineering, and then we ended up on bicycles. So I don't know. You'll have to, dear listener, please listen. <laughs> if you can stand it, listen twice. <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll at least you'll at least have gotten a, a bunch of links and a bunch of resources to continue to if one of those struck a chord, you know, to go deep dive in further in each of those arenas. <clears throat> so as usual, it's been fun. Thank you for doing this. Oh, this has been great. This has been great discussion. And for the listeners, quick reminder: we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.